welcome to uh, the bonus episode of the complete Satoshi Kone. I'm uh, Matt Gasteyer, here as usual with uh, my co-host, Travis Trudell. Um, very exciting episode. Are you excited to close out this season with a bang, Travis? I am super excited. Uh, this is a bonus episode, not only because it's uh, the wrap-up, because we have a special guest, which makes it extra special. We do. We've been waiting for, for this all season, and uh, we've had some really good conversations, just the two of us, but uh, we wanted to bring in a third person, and not just any third person, uh, somebody who literally wrote the book on Satoshi Kon, uh, Andrew Osmond. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. We're really excited to have you on. Um, you are a sort of animation expert. Uh, you've written a number of books on animation, a, a wonderful uh, BFI Spirited Away edition, um, and then a really fun top 100 animated films book that you wrote about a decade ago, which uh, which both Travis and I have enjoyed. I was just reading uh, the Mononoke entry last night because I showed my children uh, Mononoke for the first time. So uh, very interesting read and, and just a fun book to work your way through uh, some of the great animation. But you're here today to talk about Satoshi Kon, and uh, you actually also wrote, wrote a book on him, which which is sadly out of print, but it fortunately is in our library system. So I was able to, mm -hmm. uh, to read it and it's really a wonderful read. So we're really excited to have you on. Thank you. Uh, and I'm glad that my book is still circulating in some form. <laughs> yeah, ho hopefully it will, uh, will, you know, get, get reprinted so that uh, more people can enjoy it because I think there's a lot of, uh, really interesting nuggets to pull from it, not just, uh, about, Cohn's films, but about his life, um, details that really aren't available anywhere else uh, in English. So it is a, a, a really great resource for any Cohn fan, I think. Thank you. We, we like to start at the beginning with our guests. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, just generally speaking, how you became interested in animation and uh, pursued it as, uh, as an area of study. Um, I began as a fan, really. I was um, I was always interested in uh, things like Disney and some American animation. And then I'm old enough to have seen Akira, the Japanese film, when it was first released in Britain in the early 1990s. And obviously that changed the perception of a lot of Westerners about what animation could be and um, led to um, uh, some Japanese animation releases in Britain. And it just kind of evolved slowly. Um, before too long, I saw the first, I saw my first uh, Miyazaki films and uh, that got me more and more interested. And um, in 97, I was able to, I think it was 97 or 98, I was able to see Perfect Blue, and that was um, a whole other dimension of uh, anime. It's, uh, so, I mean, it was uh, just the kind of um, fanish interest that uh, developed into something more serious about uh, trying to find out about the field. That's fantastic. Uh, that's uh, it. Always seems the story. The story I think we all shared was uh, Akira and Miyazaki mm. being our gateway drugs into uh, animation. Uh, they are mm. such. Uh, uh, they elevate the 
they elevate the work so greatly with uh, both its uh, their styles and their uh, their substance. So, yeah, that's fantastic that that's something that uh that got you in as well. Now, now would you? Why do you think animation took hold in Japan, uh, perhaps more than any other country? Um, it seems to be they have embraced it so much more fully than a lot of other countries where it's been kind of relegated to just kids, kids fair. That's a massive question. It's, 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 it's it's an excellent question. And so I'm not, um, I wasn't really, um, it's hard to pronounce this. I mean, I do partly think it may have been to do with, um, the fact that, um, obviously in America, um, particularly there was a history of uh, regulation and censorship on both uh, mm. comic on both comics and animation da- dating back i think to the 50s and 60s in um, in japan that never seems to have uh, happened in quite the same way so that um i think uh, from the 50s and 60s you had uh, comics certainly with with uh, surprising material shall we say and that um eventually fed into uh, animation as well and um i suppose there just was never quite the perception that uh, animation should be for kids or that um it was wrong to have um i don't know a character dying on screen or a violent shootout in animation um i mean obviously there were shootouts in, in animation back in the early 70s with the uh, first lupin series mm. it's um it may, it may just be it may be as much accident as anything else in terms of uh there wasn't the same emphasis on regulation and stances and practices that uh, we had in um, we had in certainly in America. I mean, I remember that the um, the first um, Japanese animation I think that I saw was um, Battle of the Planets, which was uh, an Americanized version of a uh, Japanese 70s sci-fi series. And uh, I later found out um, notoriously that uh, the American version was massively, massively censored for any kinds of uh, violence or upsetting imagery or cities blowing up or civilians being trampled. And it was um, cut up so much in the American version that the story became completely incoherent. The stories make no sense if you, if you watch the American dubs. But luckily, I was so young at that time that I didn't <laughs> notice. Oh, yeah. do, do you think? Do you think the? Re- I mean, because by, obviously by the eighties, um, the censorship wasn't there anymore. You know, we had adult certain adult cartoons like Heavy Metal or Fritz the Cat. Um, mm. But but I wonder if there was still remain the stigma of animation being only for kids. And so they had to edit it in order for them from their perspective, in order for it to be commercially successful, um, as opposed to if they had just released uh, something that was truer to the original, the Mm -hmm. the niche audience for adult animation was so small from their perspective that they didn't really see any, any kind of foothold to, to get through to a broader audience. 
I think that's right. I mean, um, certainly, I mean, uh, as you say, there was Fritz the Cat and Heavy Metal, and um, actually two of the first uh, cartoon films I saw in the cinema were Lord of the Rings by Ralph Bakshi mm, yeah. and, and Watership Down by Martin Rosen, oh, yeah. which are both, um, they go a little beyond the Disney fair, shall we say, um, especially Watership Down. Yeah. But even so, um, although those were both 70s films, I think that... Um, the perception that animation should really be for kids, it did, um, it lingered on a lot, I think, in Western TV, um, certainly in um, American Britain, uh, through the 80s. It was maybe... It was maybe densed a little by the rise of the graphic novels by things like um, Batman the Dark Knight Returns and uh, Watchmen. And then uh, you had the uh, Batman the Animated, the Animated Series in the early 90s. Um, so, I mean, that was, a, that was a step forward. And then it was around the same time that you got Akira, um, which made people sit up. But so I remember, I mean, I interviewed the um, person who um, was responsible for distributing Akira in Britain. And uh, he, he remember, and he told me about he went to see it in London as a London cinema. And he did, he, he did not know what to expect. And he was just uh, knocked back because um, it was something outside his expectations of animation at the time it's um it felt totally radical totally new um even though as you say there have been precedents like fritz the cat and heavy metal um even so the perception the four kids perception lingers for a long time i think yeah i i also wonder if there there was there's kind of like a parallel um with the kind of artificiality of Japanese cinema, especially initially, you know, that it was always perceived as something that was not meant to mirror reality. And so it, what's the difference between if it's drawn or if it's sort of presented in a proscenium, they're, they're essentially the same thing in terms of trying to convey a story in, in, a, in an artificial format. When we're talking about Japanese anime, I mean, how, how important do you think that context is uh, for understanding Cohn's work. Um, you know, you mentioned in your book that he wasn't um, an especially uh, avid fan of mm. anime, um, that he, he mostly took his influence from live action film and in many cases from Western live action film. But do you feel like there is sort of an important context uh, within the, the industry and culture that he created his films uh, for, for getting a fuller appreciation of them? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, on the one hand, I would say that um, um, Con's films can be enjoyed by someone coming from live action cinema because uh, there are so many analogies, obviously, between Hitchcock and Perfect Blue. Um, um, Tokyo Godfathers um, derives its templates from the Western Three Godfathers and so on. Um, so, so on the one hand, it's very accessible if you're not a fan of animation or, or anime. On the other hand, um, I, as I think I say in my book, uh, Con has, has been a fan of um, Otomo, who was uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, who was the uh, creator of Akira, and uh, later on he worked with uh, sorry Mamoru Oshii, who was the um, he's best known as the director of uh, Ghost in the Shell. But uh, um, Kon worked with Oshii on uh, uh, a previous film, uh, Past Labor Two, um, and these are 
in in the way you could almost compare Osmo and uh, Oshi to figures like um, uh, Frank Miller, Alan Moore in American mm. in American comics, because they were trying to push um, anime, um, manga, and anime into more serious areas. I mean, I mentioned Pat Labor 2, which is a political thriller. It's done very much like a live action film. It's, it's a commentary on the state of on the state of Japan and its uh, relationship with America. It's very different from um, a lot of anime fair and, and still is. Um, it's one of the film I would recommend seeing if, if, if you are looking into uh, Con's likely influences. So um, I think uh, context in anime is uh, useful for uh, uh, enjoying Con, but uh, you can come to him without that context. Do you think that's part of the reason why he has gained so much success in the West, that you, you don't necessarily need that context in order to, to enjoy his films? Yes, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, and it's also true of the very different director Miyazaki. I think, um, mm. I, I, yeah. When you first uh, when you first got into to his his work, I mean, what what prompted you to kind of think about writing a book about him? Um, when did you first get the idea? Uh, just kind of like in in the the release schedule of his work. When did you first kind of decide you wanted to write a book about him? And kind of what was that experience like? Um, actually, I was commissioned. Um, I was um, I was commissioned by some uh, very good people um, uh, who were who were linked with uh, Stonebridge Press. Um, I had I had uh, written uh, I had written articles about um, Satoshi Kon previously, um, and in fact, I'd uh, been able to interview him once where at the Venice Festival where he came to uh, show uh, Paprika. Um, so um, I was well aware of his uh, work, but um, certainly w when I was commissioned, that was a wonderful opportunity to um, go much deeper um, into his films and to try to think out more about uh, why they were good and why they were interesting and what they were saying. And uh, in the end, it also gave me the opportunity uh, for me to interview him again at his studio in Tokyo, which was mm. a great experience. Uh, that must have been fantastic being able to sit it down was. and talk to them about the work, especially now in retrospect, knowing uh, how short uh, our time with him uh, was. Mm. Uh, speaking of talking with Khan, uh, you know, what do you think, uh, you know, after writing the book on this, you know, and talking about it so much, and we've talked about it a bunch of season, but what do you feel is uh, his most significant contribution to animation or like film in general? Uh, the, what is it about Khan that uh, uh, makes it so, you know, we would do a whole season just about him uh, and so many other people are starting to recognize that uh, how good his work is? I think he takes some very strong ideas and dichotomies and even within uh, just a small number of anime, he takes them in uh, amazingly different ways. I mean, he uh, obviously he could make a horror film, he could make a romantic, magic, realist biopic, he could make a um, warm-hearted Christmas comedy, which is comparable to Frank Capra, mm -hmm. as in Tokyo Godfathers, and he could uh, make a film about... Um, 
investigators going into dreams that um, I just think is uh, so much more fun and funny than the obvious live action film about investigators going into dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We talked in detail about that um, <laughs> on, the, on the last episode. I, I, I mean, I think uh, along those lines, the, the fact that it's more, I, I think it's certainly more interesting uh, story-wise, but I think also the, the filmic techniques are so unique and really um, things that can only be accomplished through animation, which is something that we've talked a lot about through the season. Um, do you feel like you see the kind of reverberations of those techniques, the sort of uh, the unique editing transitions, the interesting ways in which he uses perspective? Um, do you see that through uh, sort of subsequent animation work? Um, obviously, people have kind of tried to to execute it in live action through the use of CGI, and I, I never really felt like it was particularly successful, but I'm wondering if you see kind of the influence of his technique um, in, in subsequent animation within the, the last 15 years. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question. Certainly, I think there are um, some animations and some films that uh, share his themes, um, either, um, either through influence or by coincidence. Um, in terms of animation, the uh, the ones I've seen that do that do strike me uh, as having analogies, um, there was Undone, which is the um, series from Amazon Prime, um, mm. the yeah. um, the rotoscope series, which uh, I thought was very I thought was very good. Also, even some of the particular episodes of the uh, series Bojack Horseman, mm -hmm. which um, there, there are some, for example, I, I forget the title of the episode now, but there was one brilliant episode in which is um, basically set within the minds of a woman with dementia. And um, it is about her wandering through her, her, her own memories. And mm. um that struck me as uh, very uh, con-ish. Um, also, on the more gentle level, there's um, a Studio Ghibli movie, not by Miyazaki, called When Marnie Was There, um, yeah. which um, is about a girl who travels to a, a kind of misty, marshy area and seems to meet another girl, but we're not sure if it's real or if it's happening in her head. And some of the transitions and the atmosphere, uh, they just remind me in a very positive way of uh, Satoshi Kon. Um, I love that comparison. That that uh, I'll have to rewatch that movie with with Kon in mind because I love that movie. But I, I never would have thought of that. Yeah, but I can totally see it. I mean, especially the duality of the two two girls for sure. Yes. Yeah, and talking about that, that's a good point of uh, BoJack Horseman, that whole opening, even the opening title sequence is uh, straight out of like some of Khan's work where you just yes. uh, are sliding <laughs> straight through from one person to the other. It's almost like the beginning uh, credit sequence of uh, Africa. Not not to mention the, the season finale one season when he uh, is sort of having a mental breakdown, uh, you know, going off the deep end with drugs and he is i mean it's almost literally perfect blue because he's unsure if he's in the police procedural that he's making or if he's in real life doing the things that he's doing um that that would seem to me to be a almost direct reference to to perfect blue so i i, I want to go a little bit deeper into his his specific films um mm. with you because i'm just kind of curious to get your your thoughts on 
Well, two things in particular. I think the first thing we wanted to ask you about is the fact that all of his films and to somewhat paranoia agent as well have mm -hmm. female protagonists. And I'm, I'm curious what, what you think of the depiction of women in his work um, in, in general. And, and, you know, if you want to speak to any of, the, of his specific films uh, in that regard. Yes. I mean, the, um, it's, it, it's a very good question. I would say, I mean, I think the women tend to be very attractive uh, presences you, you enjoy watching them um i think mima in perfect blue you can argue that she's too clueless and passive but i think there's also a basic believability about her you do care about her in a way that you often don't care about the women in peril in horror films um that said i mean certainly if uh, i've heard um some very negative um, arguments about uh, the females in con in cons films. In a way, I think uh, you could argue the most interesting female characters are, for example, the characters like the runaway girl and indeed the trans woman in Tokyo Godfathers, <laughs> who are <laughs> who are certainly. Um, both characters who were not commonly seen in anime or indeed in film at, the, at that time. And also actually the um, one character that does, um, um, that does uh, strike me as powerful um, in a way that goes beyond the normal strong female character is the um, housewife character in mm. Paranoia Agents, who yes. is the, um, who is uh, she doesn't appear until the later episodes um and at first she appears very frail and we just think that she's going to be a victim and then i won't give it away but she is anything but a victim and yeah, i think and i think i think um the episodes where she appears is incredibly powerful yeah that is that that's a turning point in that series when mm -hmm. you realize uh you you get a lot of information and then uh, she is a central, powerful figure to help uh, move that story forward into the next direction that it takes. Uh, that's a Paranoia Agent, such a great, uh, a great uh, series because it doesn't allow you to go into, it doesn't allow you to get lulled into kind of like <laughs> a uh, something that you know ex expectations, and then as it goes, it just kind of starts to, uh, you know, just <laughs> just spiral, and then you're like, wait. I'm getting my footing and then we lose <laughs> our footing again right away. So it's a, it's a, it's an absolutely fantastic example for that, for a, a strong, uh, uh, the other, one of the other things, uh, talking about, uh, with a uh, perfect blue is, uh, there is that sense that she is kind of being dragged along in this and she's, uh, she's more of the stereotypical Japanese innocent character mm -hmm. in kind of some of those stories, um, which then you, you parallel that with, uh paprika in which you have the duality of those two characters one of which uh is kind of like the stern uh straight-laced uh de you know detective of the story trying to figure some stuff out and then her wild subconscious uh you know uh, dream character paprika yeah and we we talked about that in the last episode about the the concept that it's it's funny that in that dream logic of that film she's the only character that has a alter ego in dream in the dream world 
everyone else has a similar kind of like look to them like they kind of look a little bit like themselves but uh paprika is the one that kind of she looks completely different and has a different kind of characteristics and um we talked about that potentially being because the person who loves her most the uh scientist who uh who created this uh dc mini is uh is the one who kind of has has made this character for her it, it was it was a, it was a it was a weird little piece of discussion we had about mm. the potential that this is a programmed world you know that he's made as as a person who's created this dream machine that uh he she he is potentially projecting how he visualizes her um when you know she's in this world so it's a it's it's a it's very interesting how he, his his female characters run the gamut uh, from the super strong to the also very uh, um, stereotypical, but stereotypical in terms of the story he's telling. And of, and of course, like that, that that character can can uh, be a stand in for Cone himself. Right. He he has, in fact, created this world and this character within it, um, which, you know, again, kind of layers in the the meta commentary that's all, almost always present in his work yes yep i mean uh yes th that makes sense um this is a point that's been made by other people but uh, obviously in japanese animation there's a tradition of the so-called magic girl the um uh girls who have magic powers um the, the mm. obvious incarnation is uh sailor moon um which have always I've always thought also it extends to uh, Fioko in Millennium Actress, who obviously you see her running through different times. She seems to break down space and time, all in this uh, determined search for the man that she met uh, for 10 minutes in um, <laughs> uh, for, she met for 10 minutes in a lumber room. She, re she rescues him and then she spends the rest of her life um, sort of breaking the laws of physics trying to find him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a yeah, that's a fantastic. And, and we realize it's, you know, she's not in love with him so much as as the idea of the chase of him, that feeling, mm, that one, that yes. feeling of excitement for that moment. Um, do you think uh, speak uh, going through all these films, uh, do you think that uh, Khan's themes of identity and even his uh, the concepts of his like meta commentaries he's always making about the film he is making as well as the state of anime at that time uh, do they do they hold up today in your opinion like the, those uh, those themes that he's uh, always uh, discussing in his films I think um, I think they do I mean obviously people pointed out with Perfect Blue um, the fact that there have been. Uh, scandals and disturbing incidents even in the, even in the 2010s including the uh including things like the notorious video apology of the akb 48 singer who had to shave her head oh. uh, for, for mm. example i mean that's happened fairly recently and uh there was an even uglier i think assault case um in which the in which i think the singer had to up she had to apologize for quotes causing trouble i mean that was only a couple of years ago so uh certainly the the idol industry uh perfect blue seems prophetic um 
Yeah, um, well, obviously, uh, obviously, Tokyo Girls Fathers um, has a very, I think, positive and sympathetic um, depiction of, of a trans woman at, mm-hmm. a time, at a time, again, when that was uh, not so common in uh, any media, I think, whether uh, whether animation or live action. Um, well, and I know that in the most recent American dub, um, the character Hannah was actually dubbed by a trans actress. Um, so again, it, so again, it, in that way, it feels uh, very, very much of now, of today. And yes, I mean the other, the slightly more flippant, but. Uh, Obviously, with paranoia agents, with the idea of um, our addiction to cute cartoon characters, um, you may remember that at one point in the in the mainly it revolves around a cartoon dog, but at one point we see a cartoon cat sort of looming down over um, uh, Tokyo passes by from a video screen, and as you may as you may have seen on the uh, news. The, just this week, I think that if it is um, a huge holographic cat, I think near Shinjuku Station, <laughs> um, looming down over passersby oh and getting oh if you've not seen it, uh, just go to YouTube. It is it is quite scary, perhaps, but it's trending, shall we say, in a way that uh, Con would have appreciated in a wry way, shall we say. <laughs> oh man it's a uh, sweet speaking of speaking of uh subtitling and dubbing um you're talking about uh the new tokyo godfathers um do you have an opinion either way i know that uh i know that uh sometimes the the dub the dubbing process uh you know is mainly used to help uh you know american audiences get more involved in uh, watching the films um, but do you find that there's uh, some of the subtitling or dubbing in which we uh, lose some of uh, we you know things get lost in translation subtleties or ideas that Khan is trying to put forth uh, that we're just not getting in American audiences because of the language gap it's a very good point um Obviously, I should say that um, I neither speak nor read Japanese myself, so mm-hmm. um, so it, so in a way, my perspective is constrained. Um, the one, I mean, the the one obvious subtlety, as I think of, um, actually wasn't because either by dubbing or subtitles, which is the, it's something I point out in my book, which is in Perfect Blue. Fairly early on, there's the scene where Mima uh, talks on the phone to her mother. Mm. And um, um, as any Japanese speaker was was, um, registered, I believe, the point is that when she uh, speaks to her mother, her accent changes. She's no longer speaking in a Tokyo accent. She's speaking in a country accent. Um, and it makes the implicit point that, of course, she's has elocution lessons. She's learned to speak in, in a more standard way to get her head in Japanese media. So, but um, suddenly the mask has come off. Um, and so you see that she's a country girl. This is um, more like the real Mima. And I, I believe that she also uh, speaks in the same accent in the film's final line. 
Um, now that's now that's one subtlety that would be hard to point up either in subbing or in dubbing or in dubbing. Although um, I suppose in both in both methods, I suppose there are ways you could try to convey it, but uh, perhaps not so subtly. Um, basically, when it comes to subs subs versus dubs, I mean obviously it's an argument that. Uh, used to um, rage around uh, anime fandom um, for, I think, a decade or so. Um, I mean, it's obviously both um, both have advantages and disadvantages. I mean, if you're watching subtitles, then your eyes are going to the bottom of the screen. You are missing details. You are your eyes are maybe not going to where the director wants them to go. If you're watching if you're watching the subtitles. Um, if you're watching the dubs, then there can be problems with dubbing, uh, especially if the uh, lip flaps don't really cater to uh, the English version of uh, a particular line of dialogue. Um, so it, it can sound, I mean, to me, dubs can sound artificial, although I have also heard some very, very beautiful sounding, brilliant sounding dubs as well. Um, it is. I mean, it's it swings and roundabouts in, yeah. in in my view, but really, as as I say, I'm a non-Japanese speaker, non-Japanese reader, so my perspective is constrained as much as uh, most English speakers. Yeah, and I think uh, the the third the third tier to that argument is the uh, the people who feel that the uh, the English dubs aren't. Uh, true to the intention of a director because they are changing things to make them work uh, here and being directed by an American director for, you know, sometimes, especially notoriously the uh, older dubs, like we were going back to your discussion of Battle of the Planets, how, oh, that, was yes. just, how <laughs> that was just chopped up. And then they threw a bunch of Hanna-Barbera staple characters in there with like Casey Kasem <laughs> and stuff like that to do the yes. voice work, which, you know, that was the one I also grew up on. So when I when I started doing the dive to try to find that series and found that you know the only one that really has been restored and complete is the original Japanese super science Sentai I can't remember the whole G Force yeah <laughs> I can't remember the whole entire title but you know and I was like oh man I, I totally want to see the old uh, the one I grew up with just so I could check out like what the differences are because I did read up on that and that was a fascinating thing knowing that. And I, I, I really didn't tie together what you were saying about how, uh, you know, the difference between the, you know, the film code, the motion picture code about uh, what can be shown on screen, but also that translation of the comics code at that time and how yeah. much that probably affected uh, how animation was seen on screen, how much more of that code translated yeah. to animation. That was something, yes. you know, and then I know that. In America, um, we have very strict uh, codes on what can be shown in children's programming uh, because of they didn't want it to be influential or marketing campaigns for dolls and toys. And then in the 80s, Reagan got rid of that whole entire program. And that's when we had the influx of all these uh, Japanese cartoons coming in and Thundercats and like all this stuff that was being produced here uh, made in uh, in Asia and then brought back. Uh, so we had lots of those uh, anime influences and manga influences, but 
to market and sell toys for America. <laughs> so yes. it's uh it you know it it I can see the uh, how how entangled all that can be. Um, it's uh it becomes something that uh gets harder and harder to uh, distinguish like the whys in the hows. I, I always recommend on the topic of dubbing. I always recommend to everybody who gets into um, foreign animation to spend uh, an afternoon watching a film with the dub and the subtitles on at the same time, because mm. it's really illuminating how different the experience is. And, and obviously you're eliminating, um, you know, the, the Japanese delivery of the lines, but just from a purely uh, English language storytelling perspective, they're usually quite different. Um, and you're, you're getting kind of a, uh, a, a different experience um, from watching uh, e either one. And I, I think with Cohn, uh, one, one reason that his dubs are, are relatively good um, is that he's big enough um, to get a fairly good budget uh, behind a, a dub production, but he's not so big that they're going to do what uh, Disney did to the Miyazaki films, which in my opinion was mm. a bit atrocious of casting famous people uh, in the roles, which I just find incredibly distracting because I'm just trying to, oh yeah, that's Gillian Anderson, right? I forgot. On that subject though, I mean, with, um, with, with the Miyazaki dubs, on the one hand, they've grown a lot, a lot more faithful over time. I mean, yeah. if, you compare, if you compare Kiki's Delivery Service, the one of the first dubs which took uh, massive liberties with the source. Yeah. Um, if you compare that to more recent dubs, both by Disney and I think by G Kids, yeah. they're much more faithful. The, the other point to make about um, uh, Miyazaki is that um, many of the quite a number of his films do do feature very famous Japanese actors in the voice roles in the mm. original Japanese soundtracks. So, so in a way, you can argue it's not so different from uh, from Disney uh, casting big names in, in the dub versions. Yeah, although I, I think a lot of those are voice actors. Is that right? Not not necessarily kind of famous live action actors. I think um, I would need to double check. I think some of them are famous stage actors or mm. have some live action records. Um, yeah. But yeah. What do you? Okay, so here, what is your favorite con film, Andrew? Like I know uh, we we always when we talk about our films and we wrap up seasons, we usually uh, do kind of a breakdown of uh, which one uh, resonated with us more. Um, and what would you say is your favorite out of the out of the limited works that he's uh, put out? That's difficult. I mean, I'm I suppose I'm torn between Perfect Blue which uh, does have such an impact upon me. I mean, uh, just the music alone is enough to, uh, is enough to make me sweat. It's uh, the, <laughs> it's, uh, or, you know, or the thought of that, or the thought of seeing the guy having the pizza box and knowing what's coming next. Um, oh, the, and on the other hand, uh, Tokyo Godfathers, which is the other, which you could say is the other end of the spectrum in, in many ways. It's um, it's such a benign, warm film, and it is about these um, uh, very close, very genuine relationships between the main three characters. Um, I, I suppose 
I le I watch a lot of horror films, so I suppose in the end I would um, lean into Perfect Blue. But uh, Tokyo Godfather is a very close second. Uh, I saw it a few years ago at uh, an anime festival in in Edinburgh, and uh, just seeing it on the big screen with a very appreciative crowd, um, that was quite an experience. Um, so those two really, though, those are the pillars I would say. That's almost like, uh, you know, you could use your powers for good or your or your powers for evil. You know, <laughs> perfect blue is like, let's this is what I would have got. You know, this is the cone that would have been if he continued with this like dark edge and really kind of yes. pushing the envelope versus. Uh, well, let me see how I can use my awesome visual powers to uh, tell to help bring the world together in the in the Tokyo Godfathers. That's great. But I think it's an interesting point because, I mean, the two of those films in so many ways couldn't be more different. And yet they do have sort of that duality and the sort of consistent uh, themes of Cone and um, techniques. And I think that's what makes him so fascinating uh, and his body of work so fascinating is that they are all uh, quite unique films. And yet it's hard to kind of imagine them without the juxtaposition of each of the other ones, you know, especially something, you know, we, we talked a lot about how um, Millennium Actress and Perfect Blue are somewhat the same film, just, yes. um, you know, oh, yeah, just yeah. Uh, different, uh, you know, only completely different. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and simi similarly, I think Paranoia Agent and Paprika have, have that same yes, uh, relationship um, and yet, you know, I think uh, that you wouldn't be able to understand one by only seeing the other. Um, they, they exist on their own in a, in a very unique and, and real fashion. Um, so it, it can be tough to kind of single out one or the other because it does feel so much like, like a, a whole body of work. Yes, indeed. I mean, I, I mean, I think when I first saw Tokyo Godfathers, I just thought it was a kind of a straightforward, um, warm comedy. But then I saw it again, and I, obviously, there's the scene where you have the, uh, is it Gin, Gin, the, uh, yeah. beer, the, uh, the beers' guy who suddenly meets this other beers' guy in the hospital, who, um, whose backstory is weirdly similar to the backstory that mm. Gin invented for himself, and you know, we're back in perfect blue territory. It's, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, the blending of reality and fiction. Uh, Indeed. Uh, uh, speaking of the blending of reality and fiction, and the, the and we talked in, you know, how perfect blue and Millennium Actress are opposite sides of a coin, and potentially Paprika and Paranoia Agent. Uh, you know, we could, we never, we never got to fully see and uh, finish uh, what Cohen was working on with Dream Machine. Uh, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that and that project, uh, and maybe the future of it, or if it's uh, ever going to see the light of day, or anything of that nature? That's, um, I mean, I just wish I had a good answer. Um, it does. I mean, it does seem from all of the reports that uh, are around at the moment that um, it seems doubtful whether we will ever see it, or at least it may be a long time uh, before we ever see anything of it. Um, I mean, I think that obviously a lot of the people who worked on it and worked with it have uh, very painful 
feelings uh, and memories um, bound up with uh, the, bound up with the shock of losing Tom. Um, it's uh, it may just not have been far enough along for anyone to feel comfortable uh, or for the producers to feel comfortable with trying to complete it. Mm. um, I mean, there may even be some awareness of what happens with um, the film AI, Artificial Intelligence, um, which was obviously uh, developed for, I think, decades by Stanley Kubrick. And then obviously Kubrick didn't start filming it, but um, he he bequeathed it to Spielberg, who made a version of it after Kubrick's death. And I remember at the time there were some extremely, I thought, um, kind of uh, shockingly snide negative comments about Spielberg daring to um, make to make this uh, Kubrick project. And of course, there were all the confusions about uh, the elements of the film that people presumed must have been Spielberg's smolting the film up. That turns out to be in the treatment that uh, Kubrick has has approved. Um, Things like the teddy bear and and that kind of stuff. And so it's possible that uh, there was even some awareness of the kinds of... um, negative commentary that might accompany a film passing from one esteemed director to somebody else if that makes Mm. sense yeah oh definitely yeah and i mean especially knowing that both paprika and um paranoia agent weren't really uh firmly finished story-wise when they started production of it there's probably a pretty good chance that um, even if there was sort of a full treatment uh, generated by Combe before he died, mm. that it's not what the film would have ended up looking like at all uh, by the end. So um, it, it, most likely, you know, if it, if it was completed, it would be just as much a vision of whoever it, it was that, that made it as, it as it would be of Combe's. I mean, I, I mean, I personally, I, I could, I could um, imagine a version of um, Dreaming Machine made by a very talented anime director as ending up as a wonderful film. But um, I can, I think, just understand the trepidation that, uh, you know, the studio and the producers and uh, the, and the people who worked with Con and loved Con, the the trepidation with trying to do that kind of uh, project. Yeah, it's, there's a hard balance between uh, honoring someone's uh, memory and spirit and uh, cashing in on you know what could potentially be something that is potentially popular because it would be the last work of him you know finished and we've Indeed, seen we've seen yeah. we've seen that fail failure many of other times especially in literary works where an author hasn't finished a book and like someone comes up to pick it up and finish it and it's just never the same you know Indeed. i i think t- uh you know i've we've read that it was going to be more of a kind of family appropriate film than yes anything that he'd made that's right yes. yeah um did did you have any discussions with him about kind of what it was going to look like when you uh interviewed him after uh paprika or was he kind of keeping everything under the the lid a little bit 
I'm afraid that the subject of dreaming machines did not come up. I'm, I'm now kicking myself and not, and not <laughs> asking more about it. But uh, no, I, I was asking more about his completed works. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you you weren't writing a book about uh, the films that hadn't been made yet. <laughs> <laughs> you save that for uh, the Sandman's library. Um, yes. So, so, <laughs> so, spe- so speaking of... Uh, Speaking of that kind of idea of like a, a someone that potentially could pick up uh, that film and continue to make it, is is there anyone you think working in anime today or animation in general that kind of is carrying uh, the torch for a cone like the same like uh, working in the same sort of uh, goals or aspirations or manipulating the medium the way that he was uh, doing so successfully? As uh, I think I would point to the um, the people, and it is some of the same people who have been working on Undone and Bojack Horseman in America. I mean, I think um, they have been uh, obviously uh, examining some of the same themes. So I have no idea whether they are Satoshi Kon fans, but um, they do seem to have similar interests. Uh, that is the analogy that strikes me. Nice. Um, I guess, uh, you know, uh, oh, and, and speaking of, uh, like more modern things, uh, since writing your BFI 100 animated features book, uh, in 2010, mm-hmm. has there, uh, do you think in the past 10, 15, uh, 10, 11 years, there's been any more animation that, uh, you would potentially have included in the book if you were to write it now? Yes, certainly. I think that uh, the last 10 years have been very good. Um, I mean, there's been a whole range of films, everything from Boy in the World from Brazil, mm. which, uh, we, uh, which had a very, li- uh, very limited release, I think, in America and did not even get to Britain, which I think is uh, a great shame because it's a wonderful film. And uh, to the more popular stands, I mean, something like, something like um, the first Lego movie, which um, I just think that uh, Satoshi Kon might well have loved the ending with uh, <laughs> Phil, with Will Ferrell in live action. I mean, I thought the, the, the way that that resolved the thing was really beautiful and it was a twist I did not see coming. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, a film like uh, Spider-Man uh, Into the Spider-Verse, I thought was mm. superb. Um, and in in Japan, films like uh, Your Name by Makoto Shinkai mm. and uh, A Silent Voice by the Kyoto Animation Studio. Yep, there have been um, ex- uh, excellent films in the last uh, 10 years since my book was published. And so, uh, yep, and Wreck-It Ralph and uh, Moana and uh, <laughs> oh, and, and especially, especially actually, um, uh, I think it was uh, Zootropolis in, or was it yeah. Zootopia in America, which, uh, I mean, it may seem like a funny animal movie, but uh, it's one of the most political movies that Disney's ever done. And uh, I was really surprised for seeing that. Yeah, the way it embraces its uh, like uh, dark noir aspects to it as well is is fantastic. Yeah, it's it is it was surprising. I was not expecting that at all. Uh, it definitely elevated the standard Disney kids fare. Like I was like, ooh, here we go. Let's move yeah. in this direction a little bit more. Yeah, I'm a big Moana fan as well. The 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 crab uh, shiny uh, <laughs> sequence is I think probably my favorite sequence in any any Disney movie. It's pretty out there. 
Um, have have you uh, been working on any uh, projects or books uh, in in recent years? Do you have anything that in in the pipeline? I um I do have a, I do have a couple of things in the pipeline that I'm afraid I can't quite talk about yet because they've not uh -oh. been quite <laughs> announced yet. They um uh they should both be announced um very shortly uh before before um autumn this year i think um the one thing that i can say uh that i'm in is i am an interviewee in the new documentary feature about satoshi Kon, which had its uh, premiere at uh, the Cannes festival um just last week um which uh so i was uh, very happy to be in that um it's called um satoshi Kon la Lusioniste, that is the french name um, just um, to clear up any confusion, um, the director asked me if I could if I if he could, <laughs> use that, if he could use that title, and I was very happy happy to. I mean, obviously, my book is hardly the only thing that's used that title anyway. I mean, it's been the title of at least one live action film and one animated film already, so. I, I can hardly claim ownership of that title. The um, the documentary is certainly not based on my book. Um, it it is entirely the work of of uh, of the of the director uh, Pascal Alex Vincent. But I was uh, very um, uh, flattered and uh, and happy to be one of the interviewees in the film. Yeah, I was reading the I was reading the uh, press release for it at Cannes and uh, saw the lineup of uh, in, you know impressive animators and film directors and it's uh, it's also a fantastic lineup. Oh, it's so yeah, it looks great. I'm really hoping that it uh, we can uh, we can get it here in the stateside uh, sooner rather than later because uh, it, it we you know we tried to drag our podcast out to get it <laughs> at that point. You know, as as you know, we've talked many a times with you like, sorry, we're gonna push a little bit longer as we uh, as we battled through uh, both. You know uh covid stuff and uh yeah. just uh timing of life work and uh but we uh you know we really appreciate you uh taking the time to talk to us and uh coming on coming on the show uh, uh it means a lot to us we love we love having the ability to talk to each other about films and about certain directors and whenever we get the opportunity to talk to someone who uh shares that enthusiasm for a project like this uh it always uh always brings a smile to our face and helps uh help spread the spread the love a bit more thank you very much again for having me thank you it's, it's been, been a real it's, pleasure it's been great fun thank you we are back travis it's just the two of us again just you and me baby i know back to our dual dual personalities here <laughs> um that was great uh you know i mean what a pleasure to be able to speak to somebody who has uh interviewed satoshi Kon, wrote a book on satoshi Kon, and uh and is that uh smart and uh, well spoken yeah it is uh it it helps uh put into perspective in context a lot of the stuff that we talked about as uh, fans of uh, of cone uh, to have someone with a pedigree talk uh, talk about it as well uh, really kind of 
makes us seem like we know what we're doing. Kind of, although in contrast, maybe everybody is like, wait, why didn't that guy do do the podcast on Satoshi Kon? <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to watch that documentary that's coming yeah. out and then uh, skip. Uh, they're, skip yeah, they're like, the wait, season. wait, who? why are you Why are you qualified to, to do this podcast? It's like, Cause we because we have a podcast. <laughs> because we have a podcast. <laughs> because we have a microphone and a computer so we can talk about anything. Yeah, it's very true. Um, I think, you know, um, one real takeaway for me was just, um, the kind of the experience of discovering the, you know, animation and, and sort of digging into deeper into these layers of complexity and, and sort of the process, uh, it feels like for him, uh, was similar to us in that. There is this discovery of, oh, this medium can be more than what I had initially expected. And I think that in certain ways, when you're talking about film, is unique to animation. That there's, you know, certainly film can deepen in complexity and you can explore different techniques uh, in in the medium. But I, I don't think it's kind of to the degree of revelation that you can experience with animation as you um, discover more uh, av- potential avenues of uh, expression. Yeah, completely. It's a, there's a, there's a un- unintentional bias that a lot of people have when they think about anime because it is that idea of just kid stuff. And so to be able to see that potential grow into more mature content, but also to when you start really kind of paying attention, you can see that it can branch into a million different ideas, concepts, blending concepts and other ideas together and into a into a format and a style in which uh, it makes perfect sense. Um it's also a medium in which you can experiment, I think, a lot more greatly without fear of uh, losing your audience because there comes a natural uh, plasticity and elasticity to mm. uh, what we're watching uh, because we know it is a cartoon. Uh, you know, we can easily uh, accept a lot of uh, false things as reality uh, based on our history. Um, seeing a character more for change uh, easily is acceptable because of the fact that we've watched uh, Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons for so many years that you know seeing a character uh, do a voice impersonation and, and morph into that character while talking uh, would be very uh, jarring in a live action film but to have it done in animation it makes perfect sense it's a language we understand whether we know it or not so i think there's a lot more room for experimentation and uh a lot more room for uh trying trying uh new things within the uh, medium itself yeah i love i love the comparison to looney tunes because looney tunes was also the first place that i was exposed to any sort of meta uh entertainment basically you know something oh, yeah. like duck amuck certainly um but also uh i forget the name of it but there's a there's a cartoon with um elmer fudd and bugs bunny where they uh where bugs bunny dresses up as a sheriff i think 
and they sit down to watch a movie in the theater. He's like got a gun against Elmer Fudd and the movie that they're watching is the cartoon that they're in. And so it shows Bugs Bunny dressing up as the sheriff. And so Elmer Fudd realizes that the sheriff is actually Bugs Bunny because he's watching the cartoon that we've just watched. Um, which, oh, you know, is great. just a direct, I mean, to, to me, it's just a direct line to Cone. Um, it, but the, the difference obviously is that in Looney Tunes, it's purely for the gag for the sake of the gag. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, there's obviously a lot more, um, deep examination going on in Cone's work. Um, and I, I also think what you were talking about, um, ties into what he, the point he made, which I thought was a really great point about um, com- the parallel between comics and animation and censorship in particular. Um, mm. You know, the, the idea that, you know, even before uh, the code and, um, and then the comics code uh, as well, which started in the 50s, right? The late 50s. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, th- those mediums were thought of as for kids. You know, the initial animated films, uh, uh, stuff like the Windsor McKay stuff um, was was fairly kid friendly, um, but I think that it prevented uh, the mediums from maturing in a way that that would have potentially felt natural, um, and I think that does kind of again underscore the struggle for it to be taken seriously and the shock for people when they see something that is not censored or that is not geared towards kids because they didn't even know that was possible uh in animation um or that you know people would be interested in doing something like that and obviously the novelty wears off a little bit um at a certain point in that process once you've seen nudity in an animated movie or somebody getting their head blown off or whatever it is um but then you're able to go deeper and say, okay, well, now that we've done the kind of exploitative adult themes, what are the more interesting adult themes that could potentially be explored in animation and and topics that wouldn't necessarily be covered um, in animation 20 years ago, but that can be covered now? And how does animation uh, have different tools available to them to uh, explore those topics in unique ways that are different from live action films. Yeah, for sure. Like I, uh, that I think you speaking of that, uh, makes my brain go directly to like something like, uh, I'm going to say it wrong and then you're going to correct me and then I'll say it again correctly. The, uh, Animalisa. No. Oh yeah. Anomalisa. Yeah. Anomalisa is a perfect example of, yeah, of what you're talking about. Like that is, uh, an adult, uh, a story about emotions and about uh, adults trying to connect and people trying to connect and how uh, you know the the bloom uh, the the how how something like that how romance can change so quickly to someone who uh, loses interest and how that animation style uh, served that purpose so succinctly it was uh, really beautifully done that way so I definitely uh, I definitely uh, can see that and then you know going into like segueing that into just uh Khan's final work uh which was a short film for a uh an anthology film um good morning uh that's a, another perfect distillation uh distillation of uh of how something can be achieved so simply so beautifully and so effectively 
Um, I think I think it was you who wrote somewhere like, uh, I wish all directors had a uh, had a film like this in which it distills everything about them into uh, into a fifteen second uh, or was it one, one minute? minute. It's it exactly one minute? one minute. Yeah. Yeah. A one minute a one minute film that distills uh, everything about them as a director and all their themes and passions and ideas and styles <laughs> into one one minute segment so we can have that as like a, a calling card for each director because man it is a perfect distillation of everything that he's been working towards and it is so beautiful and and uh, ethereal and magical but also uh, relatable and human in the uh in in its concept and in its execution it's also a little bit creepy right i mean there's a little bit of like a voyeuristic feel to it um that uh that nevertheless walks the line uh between creepy and completely 100 percent innocent and just yeah you know straightforwardly like depicting this normal person's life uh as they wake up in the morning so um yeah i think it it it's uh, definitely like a must see for anybody who's who's into cone and um and i think does really underscore like i think it would serve well as an introduction or a um or as a final work that you that you watch you know because i think uh it's it's charming and uh appealing on its own um but but is is much richer for the the films that came before it yeah yeah, I think uh, yeah, and it can be found. It can be found online, or uh, I think it's a supplemental feature on one of his uh, one of his Blu-rays. Uh, I can't remember which one uh, exactly, but uh, it's on uh, it's on one of the new G Kids editions of uh, his films. Um, it might also be on Paprika and the Sony Animation. And one speaking as well. of uh, blues, we've uh, once again hit on an enormous string of luck. Uh, with one of the filmmakers that we have decided to cover, um, we <laughs> uh, there were about half of his films available on Blu-ray when we decided in the U.S. when when we decided to uh, to cover Cone um, on this show, and now they are all on Blu-ray, uh, yeah. widely available uh, for everybody to go out and purchase and uh that that's really exciting this is stuff that uh that everybody should see uh so it's uh you know in particular i think the fact that that we actually ended up getting paranoia agent uh on blue is uh very very special yeah and um, that's part of the that's part of the reason for for faithful listeners who are wondering why this schedule was so long, we kind of timed some of it out to wait for Blu-ray releases of some of these works so we could have good uh, good quality transfers and special features to really dive into to uh, talk about. So, uh, And, uh, yeah, I mean, besides all the other craziness in the world, uh, we, we were waiting for our yeah. movies to come out. I mean, it makes me want to <laughs> do, a, like, part two Elaine May season just so that they will finally uh, put out... Uh, the heartbreak kid on blu-ray but uh I well don't we know. might we might be able to do that because uh i heard rumor that she might be directing another film. yeah that's true um so if we do a follow-up maybe that'll get us the heartbreak yes, kid finally on blu-ray let's hope so um the, both of those would be quite the quite the gift to bestow onto us definitely um 
so you know this is the last time we're going to be talking about uh cone in detail on on this uh show and the last uh episode of the season i'm curious to hear your overall thoughts on the experience and um just generally what you feel like you gained from from this season and this process of watching his films and reading about them i i've deepened my appreciation for animation that's definitely the number one thing um i had seen if like i talked about before i had seen a few of cone's works but not all of them i definitely had not seen paranoia agent and because of uh our our choice to choose him as our uh, mini season uh it's been uh, an extraordinary uh reconnection to that kind of world uh for a while there i was i watched a lot of anime a lot of animation and then i kind of drifted away from it uh, of late and uh doing this and reading andrew's book about the 100 animation feature films and uh history of anime um all, all the research we did really kind of led me into some really cool uh cool new realms that I hadn't really kind of been witness to and a lot of history uh, helped explain a lot of my childhood television shows that I kind of, <laughs> you know, some of them I'm like, are they fever dreams? Like recently there's a Jack and the Beanstalk movie that I swear to God I knew existed and it isn't until just now reading one of the history books that I've discovered that it does exist. <laughs> I saw it on HBO a long time ago and it was played all the time and I loved watching it, but I've never seen a physical copy of it anywhere. So now I want to uh, <laughs> reach out and watch it again because it was such a weird and disjointed film that kind of really kind of stuck in my brain, kind of the things that happened. And I think because anime and speaks such a different language in terms of its visual storytelling styles, sometimes it can feel... You know, uh, there's a ten there's a tendency in American cinema, um, especially uh, you know mainstream American cinema, to make sure everything makes sense and kind of keep a story propelling. Where a lot of the anime and animation um, that we've been talking about, uh, there becomes a logic that is inherently built into the structure that isn't uh, very obvious. And so you kind of make those like when reading a comic book where you have that white, white, white line between the panels, you're filling in that information with your brain. Um, animation has that same sort of uh, engagement, uh, especially anime. Uh, there's this uh, level of you need to fill in parts of the stuff with your own head and uh, something that a Disney movie never does. A Disney movie will make sure that everyone understands everything that's going on from five-year-old to 95-year-old. Um, you know, it's set for the broadest spectrum of an audience where anime is, is built for a very specific audience, which I think is what we're missing in American animation right now is that, you know, they make movies for kids. They make movies for adults. They make movies for uh, teenagers. They make you know they make movies for all subsets of of uh, of people. They make movies for different cultures. But animation it has to be broad and general that everyone can kind of get on board with. Where in Japan and anime they are making movies for or TV shows or movies for people who love volleyball 
or people who only like watching magical realism girls or people who only want to see uh, steampunk airships they make they 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 uh, make these things specifically for people as a and, and let the audience and let the audience come and find them versus trying to win over everyone um, which I think is what makes it much more interesting because now you can find these hidden gems of films uh, in amongst all these movies that you can really that really speaks to you individually and so it becomes that fun game of discovery which has a uh, long story short that's what this season of the show has really uh, uh, stoked in me is this uh, idea of discovery again I think it's really sad to think about Cone you know, not being here and to think about the state of animation in the U S right now. Um, there have been a number of films that I have really loved over the last five to 10 years. Uh, Andrew mentioned a couple of them, especially, uh, Spider-Man, which I think, uh, you know, anybody would, would agree is, is a step forward for American mainstream animation. Um, I think the biggest concern is that there's really nothing being made from the major studios that isn't for all of those groups that you mentioned. It's intended to be for kids. It's intended to be for adults. It's intended to be for teens. You know, Spirit Untamed just came out and it didn't look very good. It looked pretty low budget and, uh, you know, not with any sort of an interesting story but at least it was made for kids you know mm-hmm. um yep. and I, I felt the same way about the captain underpants movie it's like i hated this but you know what it wasn't for me and that's great exactly i can i could appreciate it's what it was doing uh not so much what what it was doing for me yeah you know? yeah and i think like that movies for kids don't really exist anymore in in american mainstream film and that's a sad sad thing you know i think that we really miss out on a lot and i think most particularly we miss out on films that break the mold in a lot of ways because i think when you are making a kid's movie you can have talking animals and a reasonably interesting adventure story and that free if you have those things that frees you up to do a huge amount of other things because you will keep kids attention and they're willing to go anywhere with you it's the grown-ups mm-hmm. that have a problem with animation becoming unrealistic yeah and that's where they have to that's where they start uh putting so many adult jokes in kids yeah. films to keep to keep the dad in the audience laughing while the kid is watching the simple story because it's got you know parents have to bring the kids to the movie theater so you got to give them some, the adults something uh you know not like back in the day where you just drop you know kids would just go to the movies and you know completely take over the saturday matinee with no adults there because the adult movies were in the evening and there was a know? freedom to the work that the animators were doing that i don't think is available to them anymore and part of that probably is the the computer animation work process uh mm-hmm. it needs to be more kind of uh committee committified you're not getting as much of the natural 
um, expression of the individual artist um, on the on the page. But I I think it primarily comes from just the corporatization of of animated filmmaking, and as much as I love somebody like Brad Bird, um, I don't think that there is the same level of kind of individual vision um, from films today in America that you get from something like a cone film and and or or a Miyazaki. Um, and I don't think that's exclusively because his work is mature. Um, I think that you can do it just as easily in a kid's context. I think Iron Giant is actually a good example of that. Um, but they just don't make movies like Iron Giant anymore. No, they don't. They don't. And uh, anything that is being made for kids that is uh, that is kind of uh, speaking directly to them is now being uh, put into uh, either direct releases on uh, streaming networks or stretched out too long into a television right. series. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's sad. So we, <laughs> It's you know, a bummer. It's, it's a bummer. bummer. It's a real bummer. You know, I uh, I recently decided to start, uh, you know, chronologically watching all of the Studio Ghibli stuff and because uh, it's all on HBO Max and uh, they do have the Japanese uh, versions as well. So I kind of started that process again and uh, watching, uh, you know, my neighbor Totoro and just, you know, seeing a film that is made just for kids and is, is but it has universality that kind of reaches in terms of you thinking about yourself as a kid not as you know not crass and crude jokes built in to entertain you but just kind of that instant nostalgia of the freedom of how those children are behaving and the way that they are animated uh, that is so relatable um oh yeah that when I mean, the element, you know, the whole, the whole, until the elements of the fantastical come in, like that whole beginning section, you could, I could live in that world forever and ever, which I think I is totally what, agree. I mean, Totoro is so cool because it, it, um, there, there's a real sense of, of child logic in its narrative and in its filmmaking. You know, there's, there's a lot of like a, oh, there's something shiny over there. Let's go see what that is. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, that is totally something that is, is missing from the experience of, of these modern films that there, there's a sort of a constant guy, I guess it's, it, let's call it helicopter filmmaking. It's like, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no ability for the children to be able to explore this world on their own and feel you know like they're mature and confident enough to to enter into the story it's completely guided everything is spelled out for you 100 percent um because you know it's got to appeal to every single person uh who could potentially show up opening weekend um and yeah i mean i think that's a real uh lost art uh, in a lot of ways and and I'm not you know I don't I don't want to disparage uh, animated filmmakers too much here um, in in America because I do think there's 
wonderful technique being generated in a lot of these films and there's some really beautiful things being done and there's a lot of sequences that are really interesting in some of these movies even something like Raya which I found incredibly corporate and depressing um, has some really beautiful animation in it um, and creative animation um, but in in certain ways I think that's kind of just built into the Disney model at this point that uh, in and I don't I don't necessarily know that it, it's um it's special in any way anymore. No. No, and that's I think as as Disney takes on more and more uh, 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 stature in the in the world in terms of uh, what they own and what they present to the world, uh, it is becoming more and more of a uh, a standardization. You hit these story beats, do this thing, don't stray out of this way. We have to sell this movie to China, so we can't do this. Yeah. And it just becomes a whole, a whole, a whole uh, thing that Mishigasa is not just going to, uh, is not going to allow for really creative and individual ideas. So it's a uh, so we you know we left to uh, we're left to uh, animation studios from overseas to really kind of tell those stories. Uh, something like uh, the team behind uh, the Secret of Kellis and uh, Song of the Sea or. Um, that animation story or, or Laika who is doing some really fantastic uh, stop motion animation or uh, adult filmmakers, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, uh, 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 standard uh, filmmakers uh, making uh, live action movies who uh, dip their toes into yeah. the animation world and come up with something unique and fun for, uh, you know, that matches their style, but also expands upon that, uh, that animation style, which is always good, like a fantastic Mr. Fox or uh, Anomalisa kind of thing uh, yeah. that we've talked about. And there's tons of stuff to mine from the past. Um, I just oh, yes. recently got, got to uh, watch Son of the White Mare on the new Blu-ray that was released by Arvelos, and it's a stunningly beautiful work that, uh, that anybody who loves animation should definitely... Uh, try to pick up and um, it's been unavailable for a really long time in the U.S. so it's great to finally have uh, a version of it uh, available to people um, so yeah I mean there there's there's an infinite amount of, of work out there um, it's just takes a little bit more work to dig to find the good stuff than yeah. it used to and there's a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, curated section of the Criterion yes. channel right now with some beautiful uh, animation that everyone should definitely go check out. Definitely. Um, well, so uh, on on the cone, are we are we ready to rank these things? Do it. Are we gonna Are we gonna do it? I think uh, I think we should. Uh, but before we do, let's thank our uh, let's thank all of our influences and our uh, our research books that we've. Uh, um, a few of the things that I read to prepare for this so we can delay the inevitable uh, killing our babies and uh, choosing <laughs> who we like more in our family. Um, uh, so a couple of the books that I read to kind of prepare for this season uh, to get a deeper understanding of animation. Uh, I read Anime, A History by Jonathan Clements. I read Anime, A Critical Introduction by Raina Dennison. Uh, the Soul of Anime by Ian Condry. Uh, anime from Akira to Howl's Moving Castle by Susan J. Napier. And then, of course, we read Satoshi Kon, The Illusionist by Andrew Osman. Um, you know, there were other articles and stuff we I think we also picked up on and shared and read along the way. 
Um, and then also uh, Andrew Osmond's book, uh, 100 Animated Feature Films. He does talk about a couple of Cone films in there. Um, and yeah, it was a... Uh, it was great to learn a lot about the history of this uh, and, you know, putting things into context always uh, deepens an appreciation for everything. So, yeah, what's the book that things? you what's the book that you uh, the, that you lent me? Uh, that Do was you still really have intense. it. Yeah, I still have it. I, I, I can't remember what that one was called. I was going to ask you. <laughs> that one was a really good one, too, because it had really. Uh, it was it was a collection of anime essays, essays by yeah. different uh, different uh, writers, and the Susan J Napier one uh, is in that book, and it's about uh, it's about the female gaze in uh, in Cone in uh, in Cone's work, which was uh, oh, it's called Cinema Anime. There you go. Yeah, Cinema Anime um, by uh, Stephen T Brown edited it. Um, it's definitely on the academic side, but um, for anybody that uh that is into that sort of thing that it, it had some really interesting stuff in it a lot of it was uh covering things that aren't as easy to find so i didn't read it cover to cover um yeah but uh but there's there's a lot of, of very good stuff in it yeah yeah and there's some great in some of these other books that i listed off it not only includes like uh, discussions of anime but discussions of fandom um, and uh, conventions and how it how it branches out away from just the uh, the idea of anime itself and into the larger world that it inhabits. All right, Matt, you ready to do this? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Should we do a countdown? You do a countdown. You want to do a. Should we just go? Let's see. There's one, two, three, four, five. Should we do like the. Uh, Five, four, three, two, one, yeah, and then we it. each say the the thing that is in that category. Yeah, let's do it. All right. What do you got the at the bottom? Five, number five spot. Um, I have Paranoia Agent. Wow. Um, it's not that it wasn't. I guess I put it there. I mean, honestly, all five of these movies are the number are beat out so many other things I've watched in the past couple of years. So, uh, you know, once again, do not take these as a. <laughs> <laughs> as like meaning that they are lesser quality. Sure. Uh, the only reason why I put Paranoia Agent there is because um, as much as it is Cone's work, it is also other people's work uh, as uh, he didn't direct every episode of the show. So uh, knowing that he's, you know, it was kind of uh, working around, I felt it unfair to put it higher than something that was uh, his sole direction. So I put that in, in the lower spot just because, uh, you know, some episodes are great. Some episodes are uneven. Some, you know, are metatextual that just break away from everything that uh, standalone are, are probably the best anime television that I've seen in the past, you know, 10 years. Um, but um, if I'm to rank it against his other movies, I'll, I'll just put it down there towards the bottom as something that uh, is... Uh, it's not as profound as something like the Decalogue, um, but it is something that uh, is very interesting and puts into context a lot of his other work. Are we going to be comparing everything to the Decalogue on this show? Because it's going to be really tough. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just in terms of a director who went into television for one for a series, you know, that's that's all I can. Yeah. that's all I got. So I, I the last spot is tough, right? Because I, I I don't know. For me, I think it's probably a three way tie. Um, so with the three, four and five, but 
I did yeah. I did give it a shot. So I'm putting Tokyo Godfathers in the five slot. Um, I think it's a, a wonderful movie uh, that I'm sure I will revisit many times uh, and have already seen multiple times. Um, but I think it doesn't have the same kind of um, essence of cone that the other films have that make me kind of really fall in love with them. And, and uh, I don't have the same, I think, strong connection to the film uh, from on an, an emotional level. So I think, right. you know, that it, for me, Cone is so much about kind of like the visceral experience of watching his movies. And so I, I think that's probably why I put this at the bottom, not for any reason of quality um, or complexity, but I think just from a purely experiential perspective, I enjoy the other four more. Very good. All right. Um, so my number four is uh, Paprika. Paprika. Um, I think uh, in terms of, uh, I think what we talked about in the show, in terms of what it was trying to achieve, it did so visually, but uh, story-wise um, and on a deeper dive into kind of like how this world is achieved, it kind of uh, fell a little apart for me and didn't really kind of live up to uh, the success of the other three films that are a little that are ahead of it. And like I said, don't get me wrong, that movie is still hands down a fantastic film and I highly recommend watching it with any member of your family because it is... Uh, it is a visual feast, but it doesn't kind of it doesn't resonate as strongly like you were saying with uh, Tokyo Godfathers. It didn't resonate as strongly with me as the other films in the list. My number four is also Paprika for many of the same reasons, so I won't go into super detail. But I think uh, the uh, the from a purely filmmaking perspective and and thinking about the movie as a work of somebody that's uh, fascinated with dreams I think it's a it's what it's what I could only describe if I was writing a review for the New York Post as a tour de force nice all right good we lined up there here's here, here's here here's where we uh we differentiate wildly I think uh my number three is uh perfect blue um I think it out of the gate uh makes is it like makes you sit up and take notice of this director which is exactly what he intended to do he wanted everyone to know uh that this was something different and something uh something special um but i think it's the it's here that uh i love the this the storytelling style and like we said uh his achieving a visual perfection uh in terms of its uh transitions that can never be achieved in uh, live action cinema that really kind of make me excited for this film um, it's the story content and the griminess of the of the of the humanity in the film that uh, just ranks it a little lower I guess in a year of uh, so much uh, 
so much uh, bad stuff going on in the world that it just kind of it kind of made me feel bad. So <laughs> it sank on the list. I was looking for more. I guess I'm looking for something more feel good, uh, which is what my top two end up being. So uh, I guess it's it's purely in terms of just ranking it right now that it it, it falls into that third spot. But I think it uh, like I like I've said before, you can't you can't go wrong with any of these films. My number three is Perfect Blue, uh, for many of the same reasons that uh, that you mentioned. I think uh, it's an it's a you know remarkable debut, but I think uh, the two things above it are perhaps more interesting explorations of many of the same themes. All right, very cool. Uh, so my number two is uh, Millennium Actress. Mm. Um, Whoa. Uh, I know. I see where I you're going here. <laughs> I know where we have a we have an exact. We're gonna have a, a potentially an exact flip if uh, if uh, Millennium Actress is your number two as well. But uh, uh, yeah, Millennium Actress. I think it was just a, a stunning achievement. It took all the things that Perfect Blue was doing and uh, did the did them. Um, I think more strongly but in a more hopeful and exciting way, adventurous way. Um, it, it, it told the story of generationally as opposed to just one episode, and it wasn't so much the fragmentation of a mind that was uh, slipping as much as it was the, uh, the slipping of a mind that was uh, going back into the past to uh, relive memories, which I thought was a, a beautiful way of telling someone's life story. Um, and so I just... Uh, I, I found that to be just a stunning film and uh, something I will go back to again and again. So my number two is Paranoia Agent. Um, I watched this a long time ago and actually maybe even didn't finish it on the DVD. Um and enjoyed it but felt like i was very unclear on kind of what was going on uh <laughs> only <laughs> only watching it uh you know a couple times for this did i get a firm grasp of the full story and structure of the series and uh holy shit i just love it i mean i think this is so fascinating and endlessly rewatchable and so has so much in it and it's such a great introduction to anime just in general you know because it, it touches on so many things uh and um yeah i just uh i i think it's it's uh you know just a a, a wonderful series that uh that is certainly for me an essential uh, TV series of the of the two thousands. I do not disagree with you about it being an essential TV series of the three two thousands. That is, it is a it is a fantastic series. Um, so that leaves number ones. Uh, my number one for my reasons is uh, Tokyo Godfathers. Um, there was something about this film that uh, resonated with me super strongly. Um, the world that these characters inhabit, the characters themselves, the synchronicity in terms of how they were interacting with each other and the world around them and how their stories mimic so many other stories of within the film, um, as well as uh, 
outside the film. Uh, the way I always love, I've always been a big fan of a movie that takes place in a day. Um, I love those types of stories and the adventure through in the entire town and everything they're going through. Um, I love how as the movie progresses, the magical realism elements start kicking up into high gear. Um, something that isn't uh, super noticeable at the beginning. And then it, as the show, as the movie progresses, um, you can really feel that sense of, uh, of wonder and excitement building and building and building as all these pieces start to fall together. Um, I love the way that uh, Tokyo is represented. It's a real kind of love letter to that area as much as it is an admonishment to the people that kind of uh, keep the class structures uh, firmly ensconced there. Um, and to see a society that uh, I'm never, I've never really seen in film before there in Tokyo, uh, as opposed to kind of like the city as a future self. And we usually watch the success stories or gangster films and to have like uh, characters that are usually the supporting characters in the background of every other film be the center uh really kind of uh made for an interesting story for me and uh i liked it a lot like i i cried at the end of that film and when i showed it a second when i watched it a second time i cried again and that's always a a strong signifier for me for a movie that uh, really kind of uh, speaks to me so that's why it became my number one and it was tough uh, the Millennium Actress was in that top spot for quite a while but as I sat to think about it in the in the weeks leading up to this episode I couldn't help but move it forward that notch because it was just emotionally uh, very resonant it's a really good film it really is it's very special and I think uh, I, will, I will try to make it a Christmas uh, tradition I think it's a good. Oh yes, it's a good Christmas movie. I agree one hundred percent. So my number one is Millennium Actress. It was my number one at the beginning of the season. It is my number one at the end of the season. It will be my number one forever. <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite movies. I think it's uh, perfect in every way. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean yeah, Tokyo Godfather's and Millennium Actress have five star ratings in my in my letterbox account and uh you know perfect blue paprika and paranoia agent i think are all like four and a half so yeah. i mean you're we're we're we're, ta- we're talking millimeters here of uh of uh you know uh, change and uh yeah i agree and you can hear all about every one of those episodes in great detail <laughs> uh throughout this whole season well um this is the end of, of Satoshi Kon's season. Uh, this is number four for us. We are going to pick up again with um, another wonderful director uh, for a much longer fifth season, which probably will take us uh, <laughs> the rest of the run of this show to finish. <laughs> um, yeah. We'll probably be, uh, let's see, 2022? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah no, no way. We're... We're really gonna have to. We really have to to get into it to get into twenty twenty two. There, there but, will uh, definitely there. We will definitely be in another presidential term by by the end of the, <laughs> the next season. But it'll be worth it. It will. This be. Jur- this journey is always so fun and exciting. Uh, the people we find to talk about our movies with uh, make them so much more enjoyable and. 
I can't think of spending a Sunday or Saturday afternoon in a better way than discussing movies with friends. So I appreciate us and you continuing to uh, pursue this uh, show. Absolutely. And if anybody does want to come on and talk uh, for our next season, uh, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter yeah. or uh, on the the, uh, the website or on our email. Um, I think it's the complete pod. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. I think it's complete podcast at gmail.com. That sounds right. Yeah. We, yeah. We, re- we rarely interact with you, our listening audience, <laughs> in yeah. the podcast itself. Well, so this, it's weird doing this. <laughs> that's true. And this is the other, uh, you know, this is the other thing uh, I try to do at the end of every season because I don't like doing it during every episode but you know uh we do appreciate all the feedback that we get um from everybody and if uh if you want to leave us a review uh or a rating on itunes or if you just want to tweet at us uh, we would love to hear from you and uh appreciate everybody who is uh listening to us ramble on about these uh cinematic masterpieces because um, we're having fun doing it so we hope that that you're having fun listening And with that, we're complete.